so great to see so many of you uh, back here on Mother's Day. It's, you know, we kind of slowly are beginning to get to see people again. If you're not with us, we just want you to know we miss you. We'd love to have you joining us, those who are online. Uh, I want to take you back. Uh, one of the things I love, I, I really enjoy reading biographies and uh, love hearing stories even of people's growing up. And so recently I've been reading a biography about a man named Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson was a pastor, uh, passed away not too long ago. They finished this biography, uh, kind of his story. And even if you're not familiar with him or by name, if you see different translations of the Bible, there's one called The Message. And Eugene Peterson was really the beginning author of that and was the one that saw it through to completion. During his life as a pastor, to help his congregation, he took the whole book of Philippians and wrote it in kind of modern language. And it became what would be the message. He found it so helpful. And they did that they just kept going. So he's got this great legacy and pastored and done lots of things. Well, he tells the story of his childhood. So he grew up in Montana in a very unique rural environment uh, with a family that was devout in their faith and grew up with that. And he tells a story in particular of a young boy named Cecil that was his classmate. Cecil was a, kind of a bully basically to Eugene and picked on him every day. Constantly was kind of barbing at him and pushing him around. And there's one particular day when he was going after Eugene and for whatever reason, he just, Eugene was having enough of a bad day, he reached a point where he couldn't take it anymore. And despite his fear of this bully, he grabbed him, the Cecil, and suddenly there was a revelation to him, which was that I'm stronger than Cecil. He had no idea. And so he tells the story, at that point in time, all of his Christian training left, and he threw Cecil to the ground. It was a winter day, by the way. And he began to punch him in the face, back and forth. And he even tells, as only a pastor would, of the beauty of the crimson blood as it hit the snow. And he continued back and forth. And then he began to exert his power and authority. Say uncle, say uncle, say uncle. Cecil would not respond. And then he said, suddenly my Christian heritage came back. Say, Jesus is Lord. Say, Jesus is Lord. Say, Jesus is Lord. And Cecil was his first convert. As he said, Jesus is Lord, and Eugene stepped away. <laughs> it's so poetic, isn't it? Even though it's not right, you know? Now, it's an interesting picture, though, because I think it's often how we handle our Christian life. We get into places where we trust God, we hit difficulties and struggles, and we say, you know what, God's not doing what he needs to, I'm taking charge. And we begin to exert our own power, and then we spiritualize it, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. I tell you that because we're in the middle of a study through this letter that Paul writes to this early set of churches. Now, in case you don't know, Galatia is a region in the lower part of Turkey, where we are in Turkey today. There are a whole series of churches. They've been a group of people that Paul had literally helped discover who Jesus was and had been part of that for a while. Then he'd gone away, and what he's now hearing is, oh, there's a separation in this group. There's a struggle going on, and it's particularly with Jews who follow Jesus and the Gentiles who follow Jesus. A Gentile just means someone who's not Jewish. And these Jewish followers have begun to tell them, no, no, it's not just following Jesus. You also need to follow the rules. You need to push and exert your authority. You need to begin to forcefully live in a different way. And so Paul is now writing this letter to correct, to help, and to support. 
Now, I tell you that we're in a portion of the letter. We've been looking in the last weeks. If you haven't been with us, we'd love to have you go online and hear the first message is in this to get a full picture of where we've been so far. Where we are in the letter today, Paul is kind of pulling back from all he's been teaching for just a minute. And when he gets to this part, he, he literally stops on the teaching side. And he says, I'm just pleading with you right now. I, I want to I beg you to listen to me. And then he goes, I want to remind you of who I am and who we are together. He goes, listen, when I first came to you, I came to you sick. And we don't really know what the detail of that is. He says that's when he first shared the gospel. We know Paul might have been injured. He might have literally just been ill. But somehow they took him in, this group of churches, these people, these early followers, and they began to follow Jesus. And he says, you loved me so much. We interacted and you knew my heart so deeply that you even would, and this is what he says, you would literally tear your eyes out for me. You would do anything for me. He says, something's changed and I'm just heartbroken over it. Now you have these other people who are telling you a different way and they're zealous in it. They want you to align with them. And he's talking about these Jewish believers who want them to be more Jewish than believer. That's what they want. And he says to them, you are following them. And then he gives a great litmus test for it. He says, listen, what they're doing is they're basically alienating you from other people. If that's going on, their zeal is not a good zeal. And then he sends even further, and you need to know, man, I care deeply, and my zeal for you is for the right heart. And that's where we begin with what Paul then says next. He wants to be really clear how much he cares. He says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, which I always find this is fascinating. This is a man telling us he's in the pains of childbirth. All the moms right now are going, yeah, nice try, buddy. I mean, come on, isn't that, isn't, isn't that crazy? It reminded me of when our kids were little and we would get at the different times, maybe it was on their birthdays, we would begin to tell stories of their birth. And my oldest son, when he was born, uh, Jane went through labor the whole night. Like she got it in the middle, it was all night. So we're telling the story of the horrible labor she had. She didn't even breaks. It was one contraction after another. And my eldest son, in deep compassion, looks at me and he says, oh, Ted, you must have been so tired. I have given him all of his, all the inheritance just for that one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Obviously, that was a horrible thing to do, right? And, and we get, how can we even say this? So, so I want to take you to another thing, though. I have given birth to five kidney stones. And in case you don't know, people tell us that kidney stones are like giving birth. There's just no great result. And man, you feel like that's all, all that I did in this horrible pain. And there was one time in particular when the, I, of the five, the worst one I had, I'm in the ER and I'm laying on the hospital bed beating on the things and saying things no pastor is ever supposed to say. And I'll just tell you, some of my language can get bad and it gets worse when I'm in pain. And so I'm sorry, I'm still trying to be sanctified, but I'm saying just all sorts of things you can imagine. And I feel this hand gently grab my ankle and it's a doctor. He says, hi, pastor, I go to your church. So then three more swear words came. No, not really at that point in time. I got to tell you, it is a funny thing. You talk about proclaiming your faith publicly. You just don't get a pass on anything, you know. What's, what is true of it, though, is uh, I've at least had a small understanding of the pain by giving these. And, and Paul, what he's trying to communicate is there is incredible pain that he's going through because he cares so deeply. That's the impact we want to have is Paul cares so deeply for these people He feels the pain. All he wants is for Christ to be formed in them. That's all he cares about. And and part of me wants to just stop and go, listen, I have, I've been one of your pastoral staff since 1999. 
I love you guys. I care deeply that Christ is formed in you. And, and I want you to know, even when I say things that are hard or difficult, it's because I care deeply, not because I want to rattle your cages or be hard on you. And what's hard is this section, he is, he's basically trying to get to them on things they're missing, things that they've got in the wrong direction. And so he goes on and he says, I wish I could be with you and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. In other words, I am just baffled. I wish you saw this more clearly. And I can just say it this way. We all understand, I, we've never, at least in my lifetime, seen a time when we've been more kind of drawing lines and disagreeing and alienated from one another. And one of the things that really hit me in reading this passage, though it's not central to it, is Paul has one thing, which is he's trying to bring the church back together to be one. He's looking at the leaders that have been causing the division and the alienation, and he's not so nice to them because he's really mad that what they're doing is causing alienation by drawing lines the way they are. And the one thing I would say to you is, if the people you're listening to cause you to alienate yourself from other people and be angry and hostile, stop listening to them. They are not the right voice. So I want you just to keep that in mind as we're gonna try and look at what the right voice is. And that's what Paul's getting at. He's now gonna get specific. So he's gonna say this, I'll, I'll continue on. Tell me who you want to, who, you who wanna be under the law and are not aware of what the law says. For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. Now don't worry if you don't know the story and what he means. Uh, I'm gonna to try to at least give clarity to that. So these Jewish people that had been Jews first and then became followers of Jesus are with Gentiles who become followers of Jesus. And what they don't like is the Gentiles have a different way of life. So they're saying, you need to do life the way we do as well as follow Jesus. That's the law. You need to follow these laws. And it all centers around circumcision, by the way, which we'll come back to in a little bit later. So what's happening is they are having huge infighting it's basically like this. The Jews that follow Jesus think they're in first class and everybody else is in coach. Or they're on the plane and nobody else should get on unless they do what they do to get on the plane. That's what Paul's combating is there's all sorts of other things you have to add on and not even bad things necessarily, but you're adding on to who Jesus is and you're doing it, as he says, by this simple way of the law. Now, when they hear the slave woman and the free woman, this actually would please the Jews so I wanna just give you a little background on the story so we're clear on it, um, is there are basically, uh, if you go back to Abraham, so we're gonna see it as we get going, but I wanna just give you a preface. Abraham is this guy that God says, listen, I'm gonna make you a great nation. You're gonna have a son and he's gonna bless the world and at, through that son, you're gonna have many nations. This one seed is gonna change the world. So Abraham and Sarah, they trust God and they follow him. That's called the promise that they follow. That's what we've been talking about all through this series. Now, once they get out and years go by and they're getting very old and it doesn't seem they'll have a kid, they become disconcerted and they don't think God's gonna follow on the promise. So they do something that's very legal and very understood in that day and age, which is when a wife could not have a child, when a father would not have or a husband would not have a child, they could basically elicit a concubine to have a child to carry on the legacy of that family, which is just what she does what they do together. They have Hagar come, that's the slave they're talking about, and has a child. And by the way, that child Ishmael becomes basically the father of the Gentiles. So we would say that's the seed, the slave woman is the seed of all the Gentiles. And then Isaac, Isaac comes much later, they still have him. God blesses them and Israel's blessed through it. So if you're a Jew, you're going, yeah, tell the story, man, because the slave woman Gentiles, the free woman us, that's what they're thinking. 
That's the way they're going to perceive this is Paul. So Paul's being a little, uh, little sneaky here. I just want you to get that. You probably don't care, but I do. I love the fact that he's just like, hey, I'm going to drop the mic. I'm blessed and you know. So now we continue. His son by a slave woman was born according to the flesh. Now this is where he's getting into what he's been saying earlier, but the son of the free woman was born as a result of divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents the two covenants. Now I just want to remind you of this with the flesh and then we'll look at these two differences. What, what Paul is saying here is that Abraham and Sarah stopped trusting God and they did it their own way. That's how Hagar ends up having a child because they said, God, it's taken you too long. If it's going to happen, it's up to us. Do you get the picture? That's the flesh, by the way. It's us saying, and let's just be honest, how many things do we say we trust God until it takes too long or doesn't go the way we want? We go, God, you need to take a seat. I'll I'll handle this now. That's in essence what he's saying happens. That's the flesh. That's how he's describing it. Now, he goes on to explain this in detail, and I just want to go through it kind of in bigger picture because he now describes these two covenants and these two women, these two promises. So Hagar is the woman of the flesh, and basically he talks about Mount Sinai and Jerusalem. Now, he doesn't describe all this. That's why I wanted to explain it to you. You're like Mount Sinai. Well, Mount Sinai is where God gives him the Ten Commandments. So he's connecting Hagar with the giving of the Ten Commandments, with the law. And then he connects Jerusalem, which is the center of the law. And he's saying all these things, like with Hagar, the law and the center of the law, are doing it in their own flesh. They're basically trying to force God's will into being. And then it says of her, she's the mother in slavery as well as her kids. Which, by the way, this is just a side note, but he does not... uh, really kind of dishonor Hagar. He's speaking of the fact that she is subjected to it too. She did exactly what she's supposed to and she lives this legacy in a reaction, not in her own desire. It's just an interesting side note. Then he brings up Sarah. He says, Sarah now is from Jerusalem above, the true Jerusalem, which by the way, when Jesus returns, will come down. We don't go to be in heaven when he returns. Heaven is brought to earth and we live in a new heaven and a new earth. The new Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem, by the way, is waiting and walking into his promise. Now that is both amazing and probably really hard for us, isn't it? I mean, just think about it for a minute. How many times have we said, if it don't happen now, I'm, it's, I'm going to make it happen. I, I can't, it's taking too long. And by the way, in case you don't know, you realize that we are the most, <laughs> the most impatient people on the planet in history. I mean, some of you are already going, dude, you've been talking 15 minutes. I need to look at my phone. This is just taking too long. Wrap it up. Where's a video? Somebody show me something. And then if we don't get what we want, I mean, how many of you ordered something on Amazon Prime and it didn't come the day it was supposed to? You're like, I can't, what's wrong with Amazon Prime? I can't believe they didn't bring it to me. There are restaurants closed today. It's Mother's Day. Why can I not go where I want to go when I want to go? Let's be honest. Is not patience difficult for us? He's saying people of promise walk into his promise waiting. And by the way, Sarah is the mother of freedom. That's what he's simply saying. And then he describes it through a prophecy. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, who's Sarah, she was barren at the time, who never bore a child, shout and for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than her who has a husband. In other words, this blessing is coming through Sarah as she waits in, on only what God can do. So he's giving two ideas. There's children of the flesh. We live it out in our own power and our own way. And there's children of the promise who trust and wait and live in Jesus only. That's how he's trying to combat 
this idea that it's Jesus, but you also have to do these certain rules in these certain ways, otherwise it's not fully Jesus. That's what he's combating. Now make no mistake, we're not people that tend to struggle with the commandments in the Bible and that's why we don't follow them. We have our own ways and our own rules we follow in our culture today. And I wanna give you three simple examples, three ways to think about this that I hope will make it a little more easy for you. I, I did miss this part, which is him clarifying, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, you're children of the promise. He's just reminding us, hey, if we're, we're people who follow Jesus, we're people of the promise, not people of the flesh. And yet everything in us is gonna battle. I want this to be done in my power. I've gotta make it change if it's not going well. Let me give you three simple examples from our culture and our life currently that I think might be helpful in this. The first one is something that happened here a few years ago in our community. We've had this cross up on Dewey Hill for at least all the years I've lived here. It might be a lot longer. And in case you don't live here or aren't familiar with it, it became quite a controversy uh, some years ago because a gentleman who moved into town who was a staunch atheist also was quite kind of an angry atheist where he wanted to make sure the church and state were separate and was really kind of hateful about it. So he began to very combatively argue that this cross shouldn't be on the hill and it's government property, it shouldn't happen. And Christians got up in arms. You are threatening who we are. And, and we wanted to be able to have a cross. And so what happened is people started putting it in their yards, but they also started complaining and getting quite angry. One of my both, one of the shocking responses I saw was basically telling these people to get out of town, like you don't belong here if you don't like the cross. Kind of, we're gonna demand, we're gonna take this into our own hands. That was our posture. Oh no, we're being threatened, we better control it and we better do something about it. This is what Jesus said. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So that's people of the promise, by the way. And what it's saying is, you, you do realize what the cross represents. It represents a surrendered life to Jesus that says, whatever comes, God, I'm yours. I will live for you. I trust you like children of Sarah, children waiting for your promise. I will go through whatever it takes to live for you. Now, the reason I want you to see it in this illustration is in Galatia, they wanted people to be circumcised, which was an act of devotion to God. Circumcision later becomes an image. It says when Jesus comes, the Holy Spirit will fill us and God will circumcise our hearts. What it simply means is he's gonna cut away the hardness of our hearts and help us to really follow him. It's a promise, it's not something we can do. The act of circumcision, something we do. God changing our hearts, something he does. That's true circumcision. We argue about having a cross on a hill, yet we want God to change us and make us people of the cross. By the way, what do you think's more impacting? People seeing crosses on a hill and in our yard or people who live surrendered to the cross? We know, right? That's what always killed me in this. We were so busy worrying about what was gonna happen to a hill and what might happen to culture, not realizing if we live for Jesus, that's the image of the cross. That's powerful, by the way. But we're so worried, I better take control and I better do something about it. Let me give you a second one. This is very common. Today, we have a lot of discussion about prayer and God being kind of ushered out of public schools. And we've seen it. We have all sorts of things we can't do in schools we used to be able to. And we're fearful. I've even seen people post things when bad things happen in school. They'll say things like this. Well, you told God he couldn't be in. Why would you expect him to help in a school? Like we're saying, oh no, if the school doesn't let us do this, God's, God's not gonna get what he needs. We better fight 
to make this happen. These are not bad things, by the way. I'm saying that's where our hope goes. Let me just show you this scripture. Paul says this, pray without ceasing. So, so tell me which is going to change better. Is it going to change us if we fight so we have the right, which is what we typically do. We fight for rights, and that's exactly what even Abraham and Sarah were doing by going their own way on this. We fight for the right to have kids pray, or guess what? If you and I pray and our kids learn to pray, guess where prayer is? It's everywhere. When, when God's raising up these Israelites, he says, hey, talk about this when you lie down, when you sit up, when you walk along the road, write it on the door frames of your house. He's saying, put it everywhere. When our kids were little and we began to pray for healing for different things, one of the things we found was we actually saw it and our kids started to pray for each other. Like we didn't tell them to, they just went and did it. They didn't do it because they saw us do it, they did it because they saw it was real. We're so busy worrying about how God, we need to control culture that we're not actually investing in letting the God of promise change us from the inside out. Do you see the picture? I'm hoping you see the picture. Let me give you one more. And this one's very dear to me and has been both wonderful and painful. This is one particularly churches like ours have been immersed in, which is kind of this idea of the unborn, that we care deeply for people before they're born and we care to protect that life. And we do it and it's wonderful that we care. But we do it in a way that is much more legislative than it is loving. So I, I was with a Positive Options, which is a local organization at a, at a meeting a couple of weeks ago, and I had six of you actually with me in it. And one of the great things is they say basically they're with people before, during, and after their pregnancy decision, and they walk with them. They do everything they can to help. I talked to a family recently that they were in deep financial struggle, and they helped them through the first two years with their kid. They did all sorts of things. But they told two things in that time together that were heartbreaking for me and made me realize we've been so worried about forcing culture to do what we think is right that we don't believe the promise that we can change lives. So the first one was this. They went through and they've done extensive research with women who get pregnant and have difficult pregnancy decisions and attend churches. And almost to a person, there's a very small effect that would ever tell anyone in the church or ask for input because they think of the church's input as irrelevant and they don't understand their struggle. So, so what that tells me is all the things we're doing to try and force this rule, we've done so little to love people in the midst of their struggle. Like I'm broken. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm a pastor and people don't come and tell me their pains and what they're struggling with. I can't help them. We can't help them. Like that's a love problem in case you don't realize it. That means people don't feel safe around us to tell us their struggles. Somewhere along the way, they've gotten the message. You have a struggle with this, don't tell us because we're only gonna, all we're gonna do is tell you the outcome. We're not gonna love you and care for you through it. Let me give you the other side of it. The other piece of research is that we have a lot of women who are post-abortive, meaning many of you have had abortions. You don't tell anybody. And in the church, you think you're almost forgiven. Like they literally to a person or to many of them will say, I feel like God's almost forgiven me and it's just not quite. Like somehow this is an unforgivable pain I've caused. And they don't experience the grace and the love of Christ because somehow in our worry about what's gonna happen in culture and our demand of it, We've lost sight of loving people in it and meeting them from the inside out. I just thought these were three pictures that they kind of wrecked me, but they're also good for me. Because I think we're living in a place where we're told we better fight the culture, where we better demand all this. And you, you do whatever you want. I'm not telling you not to vote for things or not to do that, but I'm telling you, please don't make that the essence of your Christianity. We're children of the promise. We are not people of culture. and We're not gonna in the flesh force this to happen. All that we're seeing are things that are a result of not living out the way we wish we could. 
It's profound, it's painful, but it's amazing. I mean, tell me, these, well, let me, the last one I had was just Jesus being compassionate. I, I put this one down, not because it's specific to this issue, but when Jesus goes away to be with the Father, which he does all through the gospel accounts, he always comes back, and the first thing you almost always read is, Jesus saw the people and he had compassion on them. In other words, the more he's with the Father, the more he has the Father's heart, the more he steps out, he begins to see people as the Father does, and he just sees the pain and the brokenness everywhere. And he comes with compassion. It's very different than the world we're living in of alienation, isn't it? It's a different way where people have promised. What if you and I begin to really deny ourselves and take up our cross? What if we become people who pray without ceasing? What if we have the compassion of Jesus? That is how children of promise change the world. Not by demanding and fighting and alienating. And that's what Paul simply is saying here. This is how he finishes this section. He says, at that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born of the power of the spirit. In other words, things of the flesh will always be angry and oppositional to things of the spirit. It's the same now. But scripture says, does scripture say, get rid of the slave woman and her son and the slave woman's son will never share the inheritance of the free woman's son. He's telling them there's no place for this way of the flesh. Stop fighting and demanding. Don't live like Hagar's life where you're saying, we'll take it upon ourselves Trust in the promise. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we're not children of a slave woman, but children of the free woman. We are children of promise. We are waiting and watching and living. It's a simple question to ask today. Whose kid are you? And make no mistake, I think sometimes we're kids of both, don't we? I mean, can we be honest? I long to be a child of promise, but there's times where I go, I better take charge on this thing. I better do it my way. I better move ahead. And kind of two ways to see it is this. If you're a kid of the flesh, you're going to say, I'm the master of how. In other words, there's no way this is going to happen unless I move ahead and force it and do it the way I think it should. That's what they did by having Sarah be a mom. The way of the promise is I'm dependent on the who, which is Jesus. Whatever you're dealing with today, let's take a posture of dependence. Jesus, I actually trust that you'll change the world by changing us. I trust that you'll change the world as I take up my cross. I trust that you'll change the world as I pray and continually cry out for things that aren't changing and they're scaring me and freaking me out and I'm concerned about. I believe you'll change the world as I'm compassionate to the people around me, that I'm honest about my own brokenness and they can be honest about theirs. Because by the way, if people don't trust us with their brokenness, it's most likely because we don't share ours. And they somehow have the illusion that they're the only broken ones. Because we're so invulnerable and we pretend through our flesh that we're okay. It's children of who we're going to be. I want to pray for us. Just ask God to even, there might be conviction in this. There might be difficulty in this. Remember, if you're mad at me about this, I love you. I'm good. But you need to know anything I'm telling you that's hard in this, it's because I love you. It's not because I have some agenda or some way. But man, I'm broken over the alienation and the way we're fighting as if we've got to do all these other things and lines are being drawn saying, if you don't think this way as well as Jesus, you can't be with me. Let's pray. Lord, I am asking for a tenderizing in us. I am asking where we are children of the flesh, where we've said it must be this way and it must be now. 
that you would begin to transform our hearts and we would let go wherever we're trying to control or fight or argue. God, I pray to you the places we've become alienated from each other, you'd begin to move us toward each other. I do pray, God, that we will become people that take up our cross, that we would surrender and submit whatever it means, loving and living like you. I pray, God, we will be people that don't fight to pray, but people that actually pray. And Lord, I'm praying that you'd fill us with compassion, that we'd begin to see each other differently. And I pray for any who've been through any of the things we mentioned, they would experience your grace today and not believe some lie that somehow they're worse or unforgivable. I pray that for any who carry a sin they think I'm unforgivable in. So God, move among us, breathe life on us. And I pray for those who might be investigating or searching that they'd be drawn to who you are and the things that we do that confound them or confuse them, let them see what's not of you so they're not distracted by it, but long for you in it. I pray this in your name, amen.